there has been a lot of news this week, but it just feels so boring. Mm. Stuff that would have been interesting in the past. There was news about how the EU is clarifying their crypto regulation. Yet I just was listening to Nick Carter talk about it. Maybe it was the poor quality of his sound. I was like, this is so boring. Yeah, I know. It does. Some of it's like a broken record. I can understand why people would want to just tune out and just come back in five or 10 years and just let all the stuff get sorted out. You know what I mean? Just take a few years off. There's something to that. At the same time, we have to create the world we want. Yeah, it doesn't just happen automatically. I have an issue with people like... Sailor, Michael Saylor, who talk about Bitcoin as an inevitability, because I don't see Saylor doing anything positive for Bitcoin, really. He turned his company into a Bitcoin ETF. Maybe he's made it easier for other companies to do that, but he wants regulated custodial Bitcoin. And what he fails to understand is that if Bitcoin becomes regulated and custodial, it loses all of the properties that potentially make it valuable according to his value proposition as this unforgeable, scarce monetary asset. So yeah, I mean, I think there is something there too. We need to support development in Bitcoin and also think deeply about the culture surrounding Bitcoin. And I'm not getting into the whole like maximalism is bad debate. I think that's just such a waste of time. There's no second best. There is no second best. There's no second best. Yeah, I think he does do some advocacy and I think he speaks to a certain market, you know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know who that is, but I'm sure there's a market out there that he speaks to and he brings them into Bitcoin and so that is good. But you're right. I don't want a custodial future where um, everybody buys Bitcoin through some sort of broker. And then that broker just keeps it in some sort of online wallet that they manage for you. That just seems like that would be a, a real miss. I, though, don't mind if that is how Bitcoin ends up for a lot of people. You know, I don't think it's great, but I don't mind if there is the option for both to exist. That seems acceptable to me. And so if Sailor can have his little world of Wall Street protected assets that, uh, you know, hold value for generations and I can have something that is sort of an alternative to the existing system that I can keep in my own cold wallet at the same time, I'm happy. If it were to skew one direction, I would really hope it skews towards my direction. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that there is a argument that it does skew towards self-custody because there's so much risk in custody, especially around the end of a monetary regime. And maybe our base case is that we are experiencing a monetary transition. So this is a period when capital controls show up. People's assets get seized and frozen and devalued because to maintain the political status quo at a period of transition, someone needs to pay for it. And generally, the people who pay for it are those without a huge amount of political or financial power, which is the every person, the normal person, while the, the elites laugh all the way to the private bank or shell company that protected their assets. We've seen it happen in history, so it's not impossible. History has shown us that gold can be seized and all that kind of stuff. So if it's in a bank, it just makes it even easier for them to come knocking. <laughs> so, not to be paranoid, but it is an element you think of when you want to hold something for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Oh, absolutely. Speaking of holding something up, this is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Saturday, September 24th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with me. It's Chris. Hey, everybody from Sacramento, California. Sacramento? Yep. We're on the road this week. I'm uh, doing a series of meetups for the day job, the Jupiter Broadcasting stuff, and a really awesome listener. His name is Jeff. He hooked us up with not only a, a spot to park, but Ethernet connectivity and 50 amps power. So we're like living the luxury life on the road right now. Wow. Yeah. Ethernet. How great is that? In a car? That's so cool. <laughs> I know. It really is. I have it coming in through my driver's window. But don't tell anybody. Gosh, that's great. Today, we have a 
bear market show, perhaps. Mm. There's some cool news, but we're going to focus in on some really fun Bitcoin education and kind of get into those specifics as we're less distracted by all the noise outside. But speaking of the noise, well, this is hardly noise. The Signet Fediment instance is live. Fediment is a custodial Chaumian eCash bank sort of thing created by Eric Surian. We'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about what Signet is in economics. Japan is finally experiencing inflation, but it's the details are kind of different than you might think. We're going to talk about why that's a little puzzling, and it might speak to some aspects of the international financial system that are not generally talked about. In tokenomics, even professional altcoin market makers are getting hacked. It was a vanity address problem, and we'll talk about how that's propped up in Bitcoin before as well, and it also ties into our discussions about generating your own seed entropy. Celsius and Voyager are in bankruptcy proceedings, and they're super weird. There's an article from crypto critic Amy Castor, and she notices that FTX just pops up everywhere. Really <laughs> weird. Then in Bitcoin education, we have an amazing article from Jameson Lop about UTXO selection. I looked at that and I thought, oh, that's going to be a chore to read. No, it was short and sweet and fun. And I think it really makes it clear to us all how that's an important thing to think about. We also will talk about Catan's home lab. Catan's a cool guy. We should get him on the pod. We should get him on the self-hosted show. All right. Because he is a self-hosting Bitcoiner. Then Bitcoin Optech goes drive chainy. They must have been listening to our episode last week. And there is an article about the surprisingly simple math of the monetary tail emission argument. This is the idea that Monero has gone with to always have a little bit of emission, something, inflation forever, just to secure the network. Then we have some feedback, including an email and some boosts. That's a full show right there. Let's just hop in. Tell me, Chris, would you use a Fediment on Lightning? You know, I think I would, as an experiment, I think I would, um, I was kind of looking at the uh, link you have here for the faucet. And, you know, I didn't realize that they were working on mobile clients, or at least this far along. And there's even an iOS test flight. So this is a little bit further than I realized. There's also um, some other things in here, like a CLI client and a web client, things that actually make me kind of want to start playing with this and start testing this. I didn't, I didn't really conceptualize it in all these different components until I looked at this website and I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> I can start working with this. Right. So let's talk about what a fediment is just to review. A fediment comes out of David Chom's idea of eCash. And so Chaumian eCash, you might recognize the word Chaumian because CoinJoin, like Samurai and Wasabi Wallet, CoinJoin technology is also based on the work of David Chaum. In a Chaumian Mint, the idea is that it's a custodial service. So the Mint takes custody of funds, but it's very private. And so even the operator of the Mint doesn't have visibility as to how the users are interacting. There's some really interesting cryptography there. And frankly, I don't think we really need to get into it. But what's happening on Bitcoin is that Fediments are, the idea is that it's a server that is connected to the Lightning Network, and you can very easily send funds into it. And then in this server, you've got Xiaomian eCash that's redeemable for Lightning. And a multi-sig federation will protect the funds. So you have to trust the federation, but it's not one entity. It's, you know, ideally a couple. And 
it very seamlessly goes in and out of Lightning. So it's kind of interesting. It's a privacy technology. It's potentially a scaling technology, but it is custodial. And I think that's an interesting thing to be developing right after the OFAC sanction of Tornado Cash, because when things get OFAC sanctioned, it gets tricky to take funds out because you're breaking the law. So it seems, you know, like this stuff is early days still. I mean, we've been mentioning that, but all the tooling around this is still pretty basic. It's beta, if maybe even alpha quality, but it's a series of tooling coming together that it, it does seem like when this kind of gets to the point of it's ready for mass adoption, there's going to be a whole suite of tooling available. Yeah. And there's also a company called Fetty that is trying to do something businessy in this space, which is interesting. It's definitely early in terms of Fediment development. At the same time, what I think is kind of cool about Fediment is it's a new way of doing custody because in the past, we've never had the ability to do custody of funds without the custodian also having all the information about the use of those funds. So even if I ran a unlicensed financial institution and I didn't require you to provide me your ID when you send me your funds, just the way that existing technological stacks work for accounts, generally accounts are entries in a database. Databases are transparent to the administrator by design. They almost have to be. So Fediment is a way of managing accounts for people, but you have these eCash tokens. You know, it's a way of creating essentially virtual tokens that are like cash and they can move between participants in the Fediment in a way that the Fediment administrator cannot discern who's receiving what. And it makes censorship of Fediment users harder because essentially as the Fediment administrator, I can steal the funds, but I can't steal one user's funds. I can turn off the Fediment, but I can't censor one user. And I think that kind of changes the way you'd behave as a custodian. And it might even change your legal responsibilities as a custodian. That's kind of an exciting aspect of it. But this Fediment is running on Signet. And I thought this might be a fun time to talk about the difference between Signet and Testnet. Have you ever used Testnet or Signet, Chris? Oh, I've definitely used apps that I think were set to use Testnet. I don't know about Signet. My understanding is that Signet's also a test network, but it's different in the sense that it's trying to address the fact that I think the regular testnet is sort of unreliably unreliable. That's correct. My understanding from the Bitcoin wiki is that there actually have been three generations of testnet Mm. and the Bitcoin client, it can automatically find the testnet if you start it with the dash testnet flag. We are currently on the third generation of testnet. Maybe the first and second generation had this issue where they used the same Genesis block as Bitcoin. And so people started to maybe get confused or maybe there was a scam where they were giving people testnet coins for real money. So they've changed some of the parameters and it's like safer to use in the sense that it's not confusable with actual Bitcoin. But the problem with testnet is that it's very unstable. And so you'll get no blocks for a while and then you'll get like 100 blocks really quickly. And it's kind of hard to control. And so Signet is a more modern testnet where the blocks are signed. And this gives you the ability to kind of control which blocks come to the network. And this is useful because you can simulate various situations in the network, like you can simulate a 51% attack or something like that by essentially signing the sequence of blocks that you want to come onto the network. And you can kind of see how your software or your Bitcoin changes uh, respond to that. It seems pretty, whenever you're dealing with people's money, you want to test it in the worst case scenarios and in the expected scenarios. And it kind of speaks to how Bitcoin is a completely different level of development 
development from any other cryptocurrency project because <laughs> they are the test nets. <laughs> there are test nets, multiple yeah. test nets. Obviously, Ethereum yeah. had a test net, which they sort of merged their proof of work chain into their proof of stake chain test net. I don't know if they have another test net now, but Bitcoin certainly has the highest level of development and infrastructure, which is really important. Now, Chris, if I told you that the Japanese yen had depreciated 40% against the US dollar this year alone, so $1 used to buy you 100 yen, now $1 buys you 140 yen, what would you guess the internal rate of inflation in Japan to be? So they've lost 40% of their value, you said? 40% of the FX this value year? of this year, since March. Since oh March. My. God. So what, what's their internal inflation like? Is it 20%, 40%, 60%? What do you think? I don't know. That's a hard question. I mean, I, I mean, I suppose part of me would think it's 40% because that's why it would go down 40%. But I'm guessing that's not the answer. That's a very reasonable guess. And the answer is 2.8%. <laughs> or, or three. Okay, okay. Okay. All right. Is this does this have something to do with the dollar too? It does. It's really interesting. I linked to an article from one of my favorite financial bear reporters, Wolf Richter. He has a podcast too. It comes out on Sundays once in a while. It's amazing. He has an incredible accent. And he breaks down the Japanese CPI calculation. And energy is up 15%. Some things are up 20% in energy, like gas, but food inflation is up 5%. You know, there are a lot of things that are going up. But some things are falling in Japan, including medical services. And this is really interesting because Japan is a single payer healthcare system. And basically the consensus is that they have incredible healthcare, like really incredible healthcare. Pricing is totally controlled by the state. And it just blows the socks off of any argument that the American sort of private healthcare model is good in any way. It's like incredible how cheap healthcare is in Japan. And it's actually reducing in cost over time. So this really controls internal inflation, which kind of makes you wonder, well, where is all this pressure on the yen coming from? What's going on? I mean, I don't know, but aren't they, I mean, aren't they going to be importing quite a bit of things just because of the size of the country and the resources available? And aren't they going to be buying a lot of those things with US dollars? Because a lot of international trade is done with US dollars and they're buying those US dollars at, I guess I might be getting this wrong, but aren't they essentially paying more for the same dollar right now? Yeah, that, that's true. And I think it's logical to say, well, they have to import a lot of materials because they live on some islands that don't necessarily have a lot of raw materials. The flip side of that is Japan exports a lot and they import cheap raw materials and then they export expensive things like Nikon camera lenses and Toyota cars and stuff like that. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, the next article puts it in context. And the next article is from our new show favorite, Jeffrey Schneider. Jeff, hope you're a listener. Jeffrey Schneider, he has this whole focus on Euro dollars. To be honest, for me, it was hard to listen to Jeff for many years because Euro dollars are in many ways invisible. He's almost talking about things that are unknowable. And so it's a slightly unsatisfying, maybe it's, it's kind of a metaphysical conversation. At the same time, I think he's really onto something. And what he points out is that the depreciation in the yen corresponds with repo market trouble. Repo is this financial transaction type that large institutions conduct. It's called a repurchase agreement. It's where I give you some bonds and you give me dollars. And then, but it's a short-term agreement. And then I have to 
give you the dollars back and you give me the bonds back very soon, maybe within a day. It's a very short-term type of financing. And what he's saying is that basically 30 years of financial repression in Japan have pushed their interest rates so low that Japanese banks and financial institutions and trading companies, Japan has a history of these things called trading companies, which are literally big companies that trade commodities, stocks, and FX and money. And they're actually borrowing short dollars and investing them long-term in Japan. And this is, according to Jeffrey, the real source of the pressure on the yen, because the structure of this trade means that the Japanese financial economy is very short dollars. And when the U.S. tightens monetary policy, this just blows up in Japan and it blows up their currency. It makes their currency rapidly depreciate because in order for these financial companies in Japan to remain solvent, they must have dollars at any cost or else they are insolvent. And that means the yen is the release valve in this system. And so it could depreciate a lot more potentially. Mm. So what does this mean for the Japanese people? And does it mean like exceptional financial pain? Does it mean prices continue to go up for a while? Because it sounds like there's no real end in sight here. It's a great question. I think that it means that if you're a Japanese person who gets paid in yen, it'll be very difficult for you to take a vacation outside of Japan. Your yen is just getting weaker and weaker relative to the currency of the world, which is the dollar. I think it means that you might have structural issues with importing energy in a tight market. I mean, maybe there's some potential for financial crises. I think Japan's kind of an interesting example because recently I feel like I talk a lot about how monetary policy is this political decision. And it seems to me that the goal of most monetary policy is to freeze the political status quo so that you kind of stabilize the financial system, usually at the expense of growth, and you kind of freeze society. So young people don't make the money that they would have otherwise, but old people don't get their financial wealth destroyed because they invested in a whole bunch of crappy financial assets that are being propped up by these policies. That kind of brings to mind Japan, because after the Japanese financial crisis in the early 90s, their demographics are sort of the poster child for a stagnant economy and a stagnant society. They're actually reducing in population over time. There's this very slightly hysterical article that suggests that in 200 years, the Japanese people will be extinct because their population is contracting so fast. Well, financial oppression isn't going to really give people the incentive to procreate. It's going to make things tighter and harder. It's going to make it more expensive to have kids. So it's not going to help with that. And you're going to end up, I think, with a, a really kind of sad situation where young people are essentially working to serve this older class that isn't producing much. I guess that is the situation, but it just doesn't seem like, oh man, it just doesn't seem fair to the people. It seems so unfair. And there's no accountability for the leadership decisions that have put things in this place. And it's happening right now at a time when energy prices hurt so much. And they're really going to feel that when they're importing energy. It just seems to me like you took a bad situation and you're making it so much worse with the cost of energy going up. What happens in Japan is the rosy future for what happens to the rest of the world, because the Japanese central bank experimented with financial repression and quantitative easing 20 years before the Federal Reserve did. So in many ways, this is our future. From my perspective, it really looks like monetary policy is a political decision to attempt to freeze the political status quo. And so in some ways, you could say that had Japan allowed more financial instability to sort of do the like the Schumpeterian, as in uh, Schumpeter, the economist who talked about creative destruction, if you allow theoretically the creative destruction of a financial crisis to shake up the economy, you have more potential future growth. But in that moment of 
financial and economic uncertainty, you often get political change. And so I think what we've seen in the developed world over the past 30 years is because there are these tools of monetary policy and government fiscal policy, there's been a real institutional desire to sort of control crises so you don't get too much political change. And in some ways, maybe that's good because who wants a revolution that has blood in the streets and everything's a mess? On the other hand, maybe our society is much less developed. I think that there are a lot of positive developments in terms of women's rights and stuff like that definitely have been held back in Japan. I mean, they're sort of a famously patriarchal society. That also might feed into their demographic problems. Right. And what an impossible thing for most people to wrap their heads around and kind of decipher and try to get an answer as to what the hell is going on. The financial world has gotten so complex that I think it's just totally beyond the reach of probably most citizens to understand what's going on and how that's affecting them day to day and correlate the two things because it's a totally opaque system. Yeah, 100%. And now for something a little lighter. First, don't you love this Web3 is going great site? It's just such a great (laughs) site. I believe it's a... Molly White. Yeah, Molly. Thank you. Yeah. Molly has dedicated herself to finding out all of the stupid things happening in the world of altcoins. And uh, she follows it with a passion, clearly. She must be a web designer because she has this cool scrolling website. It's really optimized for mobile, I think. And the title is Winter Mute Hacked for $160 million. Winter Mute is a crypto market maker. So they're a big company that basically owns a lot of cryptocurrencies and you can pay them to trade on your exchange and deepen liquidity. And it's funny because they had these vanity addresses and we think of vanity addresses in the context of, say, Andreas Antonopoulos's Mastering Bitcoin book, where I think he has an example of his vanity address, One Love. So it's a Bitcoin address, but it, it starts with One Love and then B-A-F-E, yada, da 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 Now, how do you create a vanity address? Well, you basically have a program generating private public key pairs and you grind through them until you find some public keys that match your parameters. Well, why did this market-making firm want a vanity address? Well, it turns out that in Ethereum, transaction fees are cheaper if your address has a lot of zeros in it. And so Wintermute needed this sort of admin vault for all of their trading, and it made a lot of sense to have a cheap address. And so they spent some time finding an address with a lot of zeros. Unfortunately, it appears that the tool they used did not have sufficient entropy. And so we've talked about this in terms of generating your own seed for your Bitcoin wallet, but basically you need to make sure that the source of randomness for your wallet is very random. Something else we should mention before we get too far into this is we don't know for sure, but it appears that they may have exploited an attack that was disclosed just five days previously. And that's bad because it means that the winter mute folks could have applied the fix, could have applied a patch and have avoided this altogether. They had five days of heads up. I mean, it's not a lot of time, but that adds a little bit of sting. And also it's worth mentioning, this appears to be like the second incident in the last couple of months with Wintermute. In June, the group provided the wrong wallet address to the Optimism Project, and they sent 20 million tokens to a non-existent address. Oops. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. The vulnerability disclosure is that this tool called Profanity, great name, by the way, Mm. used 32 bits of randomness to create a 256-bit private key. Well, guess what? Your private key is only as good as your randomness. So if you've got 32 bits of randomness for a 256-bit private key, I don't think you're getting 256 bits of protection. (laughs) 
And for context, to brute force a properly generated 256-bit private key, how long would you need? 26 billion years and a computer the size of our solar system? Or is the computer the size of our galaxy? I can't, can't quite remember. <laughs> I think either way, when you get to that size, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. Okay, two big fails in a short period of time. You would think that Wintermute, okay, they're a joke, right? Mm -hmm. Not really. They're kind of a darling of crypto VCs. I think that Nick Carter said he thinks it's a pretty serious company and it's impressive that they can absorb a $160 million loss and stay solvent. I don't know. It's a pretty obvious problem generating sufficient entropy. And it might speak to the fact that people who are doing this sort of market making fintech stuff, they're not really thinking too deeply about the technology, they're thinking about all these opportunities to do arbitrage and make money, Yeah, which I guess is natural. But these systems are pretty complex. You can trip yourself up easily. I think one of the things that betrays the fact that all of this is really just about everybody involved making money and dumping on the public is that they don't lose credibility when these things happen. It's a, oh, you know, dust yourself off and keep on going and we'll still talk about you like you're a legitimate organization that understands how to secure infrastructure and knows how to move funds around. And we just pretend like they do. They just pretend like like these mistakes don't matter. And it's just a it's to me a clear signal that the real intention behind all of this isn't to create some new superior financial system that gives more freedom to people. It's really just about making money. And as long as these things keep making money, these little issues like screwing up pretty bad twice in just a couple of months or, you know, losing one hundred sixty million dollars of your users funds. It's, it's no big deal. Isn't it impressive how they can just absorb that? That's great. Growing pains, man. Right. Startup culture. Culture. So early. Move fast and break eggs. Or... <laughs> oh, could that be a title? Move fast and break eggs. I like it. <laughs> It's nonsense, but it led me to a Bitcoin Stack Exchange article from eight years ago about creating vanity addresses in Bitcoin. And if you scroll down, one of the top comments is, do not use this tool. It's been compromised. And so vanity addresses and essentially generating random addresses, but adding the additional complication of wanting the outcome to look a certain way, it creates this attack surface. And it's been exploited for almost a decade now, the desire to create vanity addresses addresses. And if Wintermute weren't such a joke, they would have known better. They would have known to audit this code before putting any sort of serious money into it. Yeah, that's it right there. They could have audited this before it happened. They could have hired a professional to look at this kind of stuff. And if they were serious about protecting individuals' wealth and value, they would have. Which actually brings us quite nicely to the fools over at Celsius. <laughs> <laughs> I love to hate these guys. <laughs> Celsius is currently going through bankruptcy procedures. And the crypto journalist Amy Castor, who's a famous no-coiner, I've been critical of the no-coin philosophy. That said, I prefer no-coiners to altcoiners because altcoiners, they're pumping their bags all day long. They can't stop. They're not even aware of it. But with no-coiners, because they're so sort of sour at crypto, and rightly so, crypto is terrible, but unfortunately, they lump Bitcoin into that. They are just on the the prowl for anything that looks shady or ridiculous. And that's great. You know, that's a good source of criticism. But an interesting thing that happened in the new financial docs that have come out in the Celsius bankruptcy is that they have magically found $70 million from the repayment of US dollar denominated loans. Oh, there it is. 
It was just under Alex's bed. <laughs> right. Imagine that. And they don't want to give it to their customers who got wrecked. They want to spend the money to keep Celsius going and keep paying fat salaries and investing in their ridiculous mining farm project, which is never for going to get them out of this hole. Yeah, they think they're going to they're gonna mine Bitcoin their way out. And then, yeah, as if. Yeah, unfortunate, right? Because again, here you have a situation where people put their savings into this. You know, they wanted that sweet 18% APY. Why? <laughs> and they were told that Celsius was a better alternative than the banks. It's better. And then, you know, at some point, just one day, they're told, hey, your money's gone and you're not going to get access to it. Okay. So just picture that for a moment. Picture that email coming to your inbox. Maybe some of you listening got this email. And now imagine hearing that they have found this extra cash and they don't plan to return it to the customers. You imagine that. Not just that. Chrissy Mashinsky, the wife of Celsius CEO, Alex Mashinsky, she releases and sells t-shirts and her new t-shirt is unbankrupt yourself. Nice. That's classy. You know, it's classy. Really shows that she cares. Amy also talks about Voyager Digital. The other, do they call it CFI? centralized mm -hmm. finance or something. The other staking fake bank company that tried to pretend it was FDIC insured and it wasn't and they went bankrupt. But what's sort of interesting is they want to continue staking. And it's odd because proof of stake is speculating in Ponzi schemes, in my opinion, because, you know, when you stake funds, you're getting a yield and another token. And all of these tokens are 100% speculative. They have no connection to the real world. They have very little adoption. Option. They're very thin markets. I actually talked to a professional staking operation and I made an argument for why what they were doing was fundamentally valueless. Can you imagine how that went? I bet they love that. They love that kind of stuff, don't they? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> it's just funny. Their faces like hardened as they were listening, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. Well, I hope they're okay. Actually, I don't care. You guys. Oh, sorry. I can't believe I swore <laughs> on air. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, gosh, I have to cut that. But what was kind of interesting about this is that FTX and Alameda, which are Sam Bankman-Fried's companies, they made a bid to buy Voyager in July. And it's really weird because Voyager is completely bankrupt and they don't have any assets. So why would you buy Voyager? Also, SBF, this guy, Sam, they were already investors in Voyager. And so it's like they've already been wiped out in the bankruptcy and then they want to buy it. And I guess I just wonder why do they care? Is it because if they buy Voyager, they can take all of the user accounts and turn them into FTX accounts and use those to sort of demonstrate that they've grown their users a lot to justify any high valuations or something? I'm trying to figure this out with FTX in general. Like, why are they putting so much money into these failed exchanges that are in some ways competitors? Because you can use Voyager to buy crypto to, to DCA and things like that. Don't recommend it, but you can. And so in a way, it's also it's a competitor to FTX. And at the same time, FTX is buying a 30% stake in the Mooch's Skybridge Capital yeah. hedge fund. Right. Who's big on custodial crypto, right? That's like part of the Mooch's offering is custodial crypto for rich idiots who don't know better. Right. And, and I just don't understand why you would invest in Scaramucci because the Mooch is a joke. He's clearly an idiot. Anything the Mooch does, literally anyone else in the world could do. You're not buying any competence, any special information, anything. I don't see the value, but FTX wants to get in bed with Scaramucci. It's so weird. It is I just weird. I wonder why 
I know. It makes me wonder if there's something we're missing in terms of maybe there's a business that Voyager was in that is really profitable. And if the rest of Voyager went away, he gets that. And maybe the same with like Scaramucci. Maybe Mucci's got a couple of like decent clients somehow that FTX is interested in. But I just can't really do the math. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work out. FTX doesn't seem like they need them at all. And FTX seems like they'd be better off in some cases if these went away. So there's something else that's motivating this. Yeah, because you found this article about FTX being valued at $32 billion as the bear market is upon us. How exactly does that work? Right. They got an evaluation of $32 billion in January. And they, as part of that, got another $400 million in Series C funding just at the end of January. So just as the bear market was really getting rolling, they got a bunch of VC cash. And so you have this really weird situation where Sam and FTX are going around buying up crypto companies using cheap fiat that they've just been, you know, given, quote unquote, by VCs. Very odd. Perhaps a good business move? I mean, maybe because they've got the money, they feel like they can just throw it at anything. There must be some logic though. And there must be, they must be getting board buy-off and they must be getting VC buy-off because the more VCs, and this was a Series C, every time you do an A, B, C, D, every time you do a a round of funding like that, you bring in more cooks, more board members, more stakeholders. I guess if they're still raising these VC rounds, then they're a mega unicorn, right? A private company with a massive valuation. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is they're either going to IPO eventually, or they're just going to keep on messing around with metrics that they think will increase their valuation and further funding rounds and just go for further and further funding rounds. It's like a Ponzi scheme that pays out to people in previous funding rounds. (laughs) So I imagine they'll just do that for a while, something like that. Yeah, that could be. I think they feel like now is their opportunity to make sure that FTX becomes one of the big dogs. Like when the bull market hits again, I think they want FTX on top. I mean, who wouldn't, right? And if you got the money to throw at it, I guess go at it. It just seems nonsensical. And and apparently FTX has snagged a lot of the professional trading volume that used to happen on BitMEX. BitMEX has kind of been distracted by their founders all being charged with crimes and they sort of have faded from the scene while FTX has captured a lot of that market. That's Mm, what I've heard. mm -hmm. I couldn't say if that's true or not. I have heard very similar things and I've also heard from listeners who consider themselves to be day traders. Good luck with that. And I know FTX is popular with them as well in part because if you use some of their API, the fees are particularly low compared to like Coinbase and I imagine Gemini and others have not honestly looked into it too deeply, though, because it doesn't interest me. No, thanks. This episode of The Bitcoin Dad is brought to you by the self-hosted show. Pew, pew, we just put a new one out and we have been covering the slow but steady pace of de-googling our lives, starting with obviously maps and Google Photos, which were the really hard ones. I think those are the toughest if you really get sucked into those. But we've been expanding out. We've also been talking about ways to monitor your network, make sure things are online. So go check out selfhosted.show. My buddy Alex and I have a new episode every two weeks that help you become sovereign with your own data. Be sovereign with your money and your data. Selfhosted.show. And on the subject of self-hosting, maybe we should talk about Catan's home lab. Yeah, this is this is a great idea. You know, I mean, at least the dashboard thing that Catan has going here. I love this kind of stuff. See it all up there. Get a heads up display of what your home lab's doing. So cool. I love Catan. I'd love to get him on the show. He is a early Bitcoiner. He had this thing called Ministry of Nodes, and he published these node guides for setting up Bitcoin nodes pretty manually in Ubuntu. I followed one of his nodes to set up an early Bitcoin note of mine years ago that I had to decommission when the hard drives failed and just, you know, such a great resource to the community. And what I love about Catan is that he's connected Bitcoin and self-hosting and he's doing it on Proxmox. (laughs) 
So what he's got is he's got a relatively powerful Dell machine with a Xeon processor. So he's got, I think, at least 16 threads in there and 64 gigabytes of ECC RAM. ECC is the memory safe RAM. So you won't get corruption in RAM because it does error checking with ECC RAM. And he runs Proxmox, which is a hypervisor. So you could think of this physical machine as basically being a tiny little AWS that can produce a lot of different virtual machines that are kind of segregated from each other. And I love that setup because it means that you can have your media server and your Bitcoin node on the same physical machine. You don't need to buy two computers, but they're actually separate. And I think that's so cool and safe. Yeah, that is a great setup. That's a sound setup. It's a lot of work for some folks, but it's also a great project that will give you, I guess, employable skills would be the way to put it. Oh, 100%. I literally set up systems like this and then work professionally in an industry that does this kind of stuff. And it's wild, right? Because you can be talking talking about what you did on the weekend and you're in a, like a meeting and these people are like, oh, wow, this, this person <laughs> really knows what they're talking about. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I was like, that, that was my weekend. I was just having a good time, man. <laughs> I'm just playing around. That's just that's my form of relaxing. Um, I like Matrix. He's got Katan's got Matrix on here. And uh, of course, a few media apps that I think are fantastic. This is the brilliant thing. When you do set up your own system and if you set it up right and secure, you can just, you know, start running Nextcloud when you're ready. And, you know, Maybe maybe you want to use uh maybe you want a decentralized chat. So you want you we want to have your own server. You can deploy matrix when you're ready. And all of it at this scale is very straightforward to manage. I don't know if you've ever tried sync thing. That's another one he has on here. An absolutely fantastic open source tool to sync stuff around. Um, and it looks like he's using it to sync files across multiple computers as well. And uh, a Proxmox container is running sync thing for him, which is cool. That's I've never used Proxmox for container running, but I know it's totally capable of doing it. And you know you get a nice UI on top of that. Personally, I've been less interested in running containers on Proxmox because you have to maintain every single container. And if you're running containers, it makes sense to have one app or container. So for me, I prefer to deploy a virtual machine and then have a solution like Docker or Podman to run containers inside the virtual machine, because then you can orchestrate multiple containers doing multiple services and define networks where they might need to communicate with each other. And you can do it all in a single file. So it's much easier to maintain. And yeah, you lose some performance, but when you've got 64 gigabytes of RAM and 16 <laughs> Xeon threads, who cares? Who cares yeah. if you lose 10%? It's not yeah. a big deal. That's essentially how I do it too. And then, you know, in some cases, some of the containers leave and share a database, all kinds of dangerous stuff that I, you know, I don't mind doing it if it's all inside a, a VM. This is great. I love this, obviously. I mean, that's why we do the self-hosted show is I love just taking much of the stuff as you can off the cloud. And when you look at what he's recommending here, it's run your own password manager locally. Use something like SyncThing instead of Dropbox. Jellyfin instead of Plex. These are things that are great. They've got years of development and you're not going to get rug pulled. I love Plex. I know people at Plex. I've talked to the CEO. I, I really appreciate the hard work that Plex, the media application does. However, they are being pulled in the directions of market forces to include all these different streaming services and go and expand beyond just local media playback for my personal collection. I'm not really interested in that, but I do understand they have to do it. But they're kind of rug pulling what I originally signed up for. And things like Jellyfin can snap in and replace that. You run it yourself. They're free software. They're not getting pulled in these weird market directions that are essentially a strategy tax that you get jerked around as as a user. Just a really good resource 
if you're looking for some what should I start with applications, this uh, My Home Lab rundown is like some of the best. Yeah, it's like a, a learning plan. If you just were to work through this, you'd learn so much. Another <laughs> thing to bring up is that Catan is has a different view than the Umbral team because Umbral puts Bitcoin and then Home Lab type stuff like Catan is hosting, such as a media server or a file server like Nextcloud on the same machine and with Docker containers that are touching each other. Catan doesn't like that. He's clearly segregating his Bitcoin financial stuff into a different VM that's probably a lot more locked down, a little more secure. And that's complicated. This is obviously a pretty advanced setup. At the same time, if you're interested, you should definitely check it out. I also noticed that Catan is not referencing the self-hosted show on his list of resources. So, oh, what a mistake. Uh Uh-oh. Someone needs to help him with that. Mm -hmm. We'll reach out. What are you feeling? UTXO selection, drive chains, or Mac? Oh man, I kind of, kind of feeling UTXO selection just because I've never thought about this, never really given this much thought, and so it's an area. It's like, oh, this explains something that I've probably interacted with, never really realized how it's working. Jameson Lop has been on a Bitcoin research tear. He had another article this week about Satoshi's mining that I really wanted to include, but it's so much Lop. I think we have to save it for later. And what he goes through in this article is that one, Bitcoin UTXOs, these outputs from transactions that have yet to be spent, they are a scaling issue. This is a problem with Ethereum. Ethereum's sort of state is huge and it's almost too big to run in RAM. And this means Ethereum needs big servers for their nodes and it centralizes their network. So preventing large numbers of UTXOs actually prevents blockchain bloat. But optimizing for efficient UTXO selection and fewer UTXOs reduces privacy. Also, for high volume wallets that send a lot of transactions, there's this additional constraint I'd never thought of before. But if you have a high transaction volume wallet, you actually want lots of UTXOs because UTXOs get confirmed at their own speed. So you might have some UTXOs with a thousand confirmations and some UTXOs with two confirmations. So if you're doing a lot of transactions, you don't want to spend that two confirmation UTXO and the other two obvious optimizations in UTXO selection is privacy, choosing UTXOs for transactions that don't mix together various aspects of your digital identity and minimizing transaction fees. There are clever ways to spend UTXOs that means you pay less for your transaction. It's hard to do all of these. So every wallet has to kind of optimize for a few of these. And Bitcoin Core, for instance, optimizes for blockchain bloat. So Bitcoin Core is always trying to reduce the number of UTXOs if you use that wallet. Whereas Samurai Wallet is optimized for privacy. So it's probably going to create more UTXOs, probably not going to be ideal for a high throughput wallet, which frankly, I think very few people need, but we'll be very careful about not combining UTXOs and reducing your privacy. So in other words, if you have a privacy focused or maybe even performance focused, I don't know if that's a thing, wallet, then it's going to keep more UTXOs around. On average, that's probably a safer assumption. It's not a guarantee, but something you could probably assume. Right. And I don't think it'll really change your experience of Bitcoin. But long term, it means that the chain state is going to be bigger and eventually we'll need bigger, more expensive hard drives to store it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That does feel inevitable. But we have have done so well in that regard for so long. And I think that performance comes out of thinking about the trade-offs and sometimes moving slowly about changing defaults. Mm. This has been a criticism of Bitcoin, especially leveled at Bitcoin from the 
altcoin community. Uh, but I think the caution is warranted when you're trying to create a system for the long term. Yeah, yeah, seems so. And speaking about the long term, there is an article here from Peter Todd, Bitcoin developer, thought criminal, I think, because he's bringing up the logic behind adding a tail emission to Bitcoin. And he takes this idea from Monero. Are you familiar with tail emissions, Chris? Oh, I've definitely heard this before, but I think I've forgotten the details. The idea is that because the block subsidy, the extra Bitcoins that are minted with every block and are given to the miner who mined that block, this subsidy decreases by half every 200,000 blocks or four years. Now, this means that in the next subsidy halving, we might see the subsidy reduced to the point where Bitcoin is insecure. There's actually not enough reward for miners to mine it. And now the amount of proof of work on the chain falls and maybe the system becomes insecure and vulnerable to 51% attacks. Uh-oh, rut-row. So Monero has gotten concerned about this and they have a solution called a tail emission where you always have some new coins. And you might say, well, that's infinite inflation. But the thing is, the number of new coins is fixed as an amount. It's not like we always have 1% more coins. It's more like we always have five more coins per block. When you start the blockchain and you have 10 coins, five new coins every block is 50% inflation every block. But once you get to having 18 or 19 million coins in circulation like Bitcoin, five new coins is very, very close to 0% emission. And Peter Todd actually does some math to say, well, logically, if we think that there's also coins being lost, then long term, the net issuance will be zero with a tail emission because the tail emission and the lost coin amounts will tend to converge over time. And so it'll actually create a stable money supply as opposed to Bitcoin's current design, which will create a decreasing money supply long term. Okay, I follow. The question is, how good is the math and how good is this model for thinking about coin supply? And I've looked through the math. It's pretty simple stuff. It's basically calculus, taking a derivative. And I got to say, I don't know if this model is reasonable. It seems pretty simplified to me. I would say it's hard to say. And I'm not too concerned about tail emission and chain security because I think that essentially Bitcoin has a variable that can adapt to these features and it's called the US dollar price. And so I think that the price of Bitcoin is very adaptive to the market environment and eventually we'll get to a price where there's sufficient mining for that price. And maybe that price is super high. And so even with a very tiny block subsidy, a high-priced million-dollar Bitcoin incentivizes a lot of miners to mine. Or maybe that price is low. And if Bitcoin falls to a low price of, say, $500 of Bitcoin, we all look like we've got egg on our face. But at $500, there are some miners who would happily mine that. So I think that long-term, it seems like a problem that we don't understand well enough to try to solve in the present, personally. That's how I feel about it. It's sort of trying to solve a problem that may not even exist, number one. But then also, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on this, is... Is it really even anything more than just um, having some intellectual fun? Because something, a change, you know, adding tail emissions to Bitcoin, that's a hard fork right there, right? And you just, I mean, what are the chances you're going to see that go? Like in Monero? Yeah. All right. They're hard forking all over the place. In Bitcoin, you better have some religion if you're going to try to make that happen. Like, I just can't even imagine. So when I see this kind of stuff, I think, what's the point? It's never going to happen. And unless it's something that's an existential crisis, and then you could somehow motivate and generate 
like consensus. It just seems like it's nothing more than just fantasizing. A hundred percent. I think that this is a subject that's pretty understandable. There are some simple models. The math is fun to do. So it's something that a lot of people feel confident to weigh in on. And we're just giving you the source. This is kind of the original document on Bitcoin about tail emission. Check it out if you care. If you don't, probably doesn't matter. Yeah, maybe you're a Monero user out there and you're wondering. Link for you right there. Now, our final bit of Bitcoin education is Bitcoin Optech 218. And the major news is a post from Jeremy Rubin, who describes a procedure that could be combined with SigHash AnyPrevout, which I believe is Jeremy's restricted covenant Bitcoin soft fork proposal, and how this could work with creating drive chains. So this is really fascinating to me because we're clearly still trying to figure out, okay, if we do this, what is even the best way to accomplish this? And what could we combine? I didn't fully appreciate that when we've talked about this before, but what Jeremy does here in this post is kind of lay it out in a way that I sort of clicked with me like, oh, we're still kind of actually debating fundamentally the best way to kind of plug this in. Paul Storks has a proposal to add two upgrades that enable DriveChain to soft forks, which I think are BIP 300 and BIP 301. And Jeremy is talking about sort of a different activation method for drive chains that uses his any prev out idea. Frankly, this is a Bitcoin dev mailing list post, so it's pretty complicated and I can't personally evaluate it. I'd love to talk to Jeremy or Paul about this, but what's really interesting is to see conversation about drive chain, which I honestly think is probably one of the most grown up and serious Bitcoin feature and scaling enhancement proposals out there. The criticism of the drive chain is to me very similar to the criticism of SegWit. The way it works is a little unintuitive and it seems complicated. And I think a lot of people don't like it because it's different than what's come before. That's also why a lot of Bcashers didn't like SegWit and don't like Lightning because it's different. As Bitcoiners who have kind of come to appreciate or accept Bitcoin, Lightning, and SegWit, I feel like drive chains are just another step in feature enhancement, which does require some complexity. But it's also just pretty fascinating from a technological standpoint, because with some very simple primitives, you can essentially create something where you can take Bitcoin, send it into a whole nother system, and then from that system, send it back to Bitcoin. And there's no exchange or trust in the middle. All you have is miners mining transactions. That sounds like a thing of beauty, if you ask me. Which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can get in touch, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. You should also consider joining our Matrix channel using a client like Element. There's a lot of great conversation on there. And our first bit of feedback this week is from Anon. Your second interview with Jill Williamson about Tornado Cash has me worried. It sounded like similar sanctions could come to Samurai Whirlpool and other Bitcoin coin join technology. Should people who have taken advantage of Samurai Whirlpool pool be worried of fines or jail time? Could this be applied retroactively if it is deemed that coin joins were always illegal? It seems to me that this could be enforced since one side of the coin join is probably KYC'd. That's kind of the point. Is there anything people who have used such technology can or should do to protect themselves? I think it's a great question. I think this is one that I've brought up once before. It's like, could I potentially be screwing future me by coin joining today and then discovering that now certain exchanges or certain resellers, or maybe it's a bank and I'm, I want to use Bitcoin as collateral for a loan. I think that was the example I brought up last time. Will they look at my Bitcoin and go, oh, well, your Bitcoin touched a, a well-known coin join, so uh, we, we won't accept that Bitcoin. That was my concern. I could see that being one of those kind of problems that bites you years
years down the road where you were trying to protect your money, you were trying to protect your privacy, you do the little coin join today, and you know, five, 10 years, you find out you can't use that Bitcoin now or something like that. Or coordinator you used is sanctioned or something like that. I, I can totally understand that concern, especially after the tornado cash stuff. It might be worth mentioning, however, the Treasury Department did update their guidance and say that the open source project on GitHub did not need to get pulled down. And GitHub has actually put it back up semi-recently. I don't know if it's the same GitHub page, but the but the tornado cash source code is back on GitHub now. Thanks for this email, Anon. I think it's really good to voice your concerns and, you know, figure out what exactly the risk is. From my perspective, the Samurai Whirlpool itself could be sanctioned. That totally could happen. That said, it's harder to sanction Bitcoin UTXOs than Ethereum addresses because Tornado Cash was essentially a single UTXO. Whereas with Bitcoin, if you wanted to sanction everyone who's touched Samurai Whirlpool, you'd be sanctioning hundreds of thousands of addresses, I believe. Is that possible to do? Sure. Is it as clear cut as Ethereum? Not at all. Because, you know, if someone went to the Samurai Whirlpool and then there was another transaction, is that third transaction sanctioned? There are a lot of big questions here. And it seems it would seem difficult to answer that. At the same time, look at what's happened with Tornado Cash. I don't really see any fines or jail time. I think they wanted to shut down that service because they perceived North Korean hackers to be using it. I mean, it's affected normal people who use it on Ethereum, but should they have not used Tornado Cash? Well, frankly, I think they should have used it because there's no privacy on Ethereum without Tornado Cash. There's like absolutely no privacy. I think the issue that they ran into is that they stayed in Tornado Cash too long. Now, in my opinion, with Bitcoin coin joins, you're not really sitting in the coin join. I mean, your UTXOs might remix in the Samurai Whirlpool, but you're not like in Samurai's address. So I think that if the Whirlpool was sanctioned, it would be very different than Tornado Cash. And it would probably be something along the lines of a very vague ban on the Samurai Whirlpool. And so it might identify their Tor address or something like that. But I mean, there's not actually like a single address that defines the Whirlpool. So I'm sure that OFAC could overreach and publish a list of millions of Bitcoin addresses and say that these have been OFAC sanctioned. Would that be very enforceable? I don't know. It would really depend on the future we live in. And that's why I think that if you're concerned about this kind of thing, having a KYC and non-KYC stack might make sense. For me personally, I'm all about the non-KYC. If Samurai Whirlpool or a CoinJoin technology got sanctioned and I was affected by that, frankly, I just waited out because <laughs> yeah. the thing about Bitcoin is yeah. it's pristine. You can, as long as you secure that private seed, you can hold it forever. And you can just wait until the sanctions blow over or there are new on and off ramps that don't expose sanctioned individuals to risk. And I'm not advocating violating US OFAC sanctions. Far from it. Just trying to describe realistically how those sanctions are enforced. And right now, the US dollar is at the heart of the of the regulated financial world. And it gives institutions like OFAC the ability to throw their weight around. Is that going to remain the same way in five or 10 years? I doubt it, frankly. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, the other, I think the other thing to consider too is as far, as far as Bitcoin goes, you know, you could have maybe some of these coin join operations get shut down, but you could also just as easily have people on a smaller scale run their own coin join markets. And that's going to be a lot trickier, right? That's a lot trickier to sanction or whatever. Is it could just be done at smaller scale. It doesn't have to be done at these large automatic convenience scales. It's a nice to have right now, but it's not necessary to how it works. So let's get into some boost before we get out of here. We got a boost, a leap 
complete set of sets, 1,337 from Adopting Bitcoin, and they write two invites for Chris and the Bitcoin Dad to the Adopting Bitcoin Conference in San Salvador and Bitcoin Beach on November 15th through the 17th. If your partners don't let you go to another Bitcoin conference, just bring them along and tell them it's the best second honeymoon that you had promised. <laughs> it's that second honeymoon. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. I've always wanted to go to El Salvador. So, you know what? I'm going to look into it. I don't know if it's possible for sure because I'm, I'm on a trip right now. And then when I get back, I have a massive, super expensive RV repair project I'm undertaking. So the timing's super tight, but I'm going to start the conversation with the wife unit tonight. Boost in and tell Chris to join your Bitcoin dad going to San Salvador because I also believe if you were to go, this would be your first trip outside the US. If Is that right? Canada excluded, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Canada's pretty wild country, so there, you give me some credit, but uh, yeah, yeah, other than that. There is that great <laughs> video of you fighting a moose. Right. Boy, did I get a bruise. Oof. You're both holding Xbox controllers. What game was it you were playing? <laughs> <laughs> Mortal Kombat. Uh, DJ boosted in with a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. Hey, it's my first boost to the Bitcoin dad pod, he says. This is good content and format. 10 to 12 chapters per episode is a sweet spot. About this episode's topics, I find that US fiat BTC on off ramps are already too locked down for newcomers even willing to comply with KYC. Dumb algo gatekeepers block and close exchange counts without the opportunity to meet human decision makers to make right, he says. And there's no legal recourse either. Maybe this will spur more P2P trade and circular economy. Economies. I'm bullish BTC as a long-term hedge, but I don't expect to pay sats for food and shelter anytime soon in the US of A. Yeah, I think I agree with DJ and thanks for the compliments. Yeah, I think I would, I, would, I mean, honestly, if I'm buying things like food and other disposable items like maybe tires and gasoline, I'd probably rather use my funny fiat than my <laughs> pristine Bitcoin, you know, <laughs> burn that funny fiat for all I care. I want to save that, that Bitcoin for collateral or as a pristine asset down the road, maybe shelter, maybe I'd spend on shelter. I think you've actually discovered or rediscovered Gresham's law. And Gresham's law is the idea that bad money drives out good. That when you have two types of money in an economy, let's say gold and silver, people hoard the gold, they hoard the good money, and then they spend the bad money. So that seems to be what's happening with Bitcoin and the dollar right now. Yep, makes sense. Our next boost is from Clarkian. One, two, three, four, five sats. Awesome content, gentlemen. Keep up the great work. Thanks for the compliment. Well, thank you, sir. Then Sir Lurks a lot comes in again. He says, here is a makeup boost because I want you to actually have the sats. 101,000 sats. Dad's node was down, so the payment failed. Chris got his split. You know what? He could have another. I learned so much because of the two of you, and I've been inspired to dive in and get my feet wet. Or as the podfather would say, to run with scissors. Or maybe fake it till I make it. It's one of those. Much love, guys. Pew, pew. Well, thanks for the mega boost. Yeah, that is great. Thank you for following up when the node... You know what? Like some people, they just let that... let that pass, but not not lurks a lot. Thank you, everyone who boosted in. We read them all. Not all of them necessarily make it on air, but we do read and appreciate all of them. So thank you, everybody who boosted in this week. It's really appreciated. Go grab a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com and boost into the show. I felt like we had a correction, but hmm, can't oh, probably it. right. Yeah. See, that's what happens if people don't boost in and tell us what we what we got wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we need that that live error checking. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Saturday, September 24th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with me. It's Chris. See you on the road, everybody. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>